the activists, especially, especially the youth activists are right to be disappointed. I mean, this is, the international community is not treating climate change like an emergency, right? COP26 was kind of same old, same old in terms of what we've come to expect out of these annual meetings. But of course, those that said that this COP made progress are also right. They, they did make progress. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. On this episode, I'll be talking to Professor Matthew Hoffman, co-director of the Environmental Governance Lab at the University of Toronto about COP26. So welcome to the interview, Matt. Great. Thanks for having me. So I looking at, you know, sort of COP26 is over. Now everybody's dissecting what happened, what didn't happen. And there seems to be two broad camps. One is very disappointed, uh, expected a lot more out of, the, out of the, uh, the conference. And the other camp says, okay, look, we didn't get as much as we would have liked, but we made substantive progress on a number of areas. And this is a, we moved the, uh, we moved the ball down the field quite a bit. So we're, we're happy with this. What's, what's your take on that? Oh, I think they're both right. Um, I think that the activists, especially especially the youth activists, are right to be disappointed. I mean, this is the international community is not treating climate change like an emergency, right? COP26 was kind of same old, same old in terms of what we've come to expect out of these annual meetings. But of course, those that said that this COP made progress are also right. They, they did make progress. They, there was a number of there was movement on a number of things, finishing up the Paris rule book, some announcements and updates of NDCs. So there was progress. They, they, they moved along in the incremental fashion that we've come to expect out of the cops. And so that part's right, but the activists are right that this is still falls well short of the kind of energy and momentum and urgency really that we need around climate change. Well, let's talk about some of the specific areas uh, in which negotiations were taking place. And there was an announcement about the phasing out of coal-powered electric electricity generation. Well, more than 40 countries committed to phase out coal for power generation, to call it the Powering Past Coal Alliance. Are we ever gonna get rid of coal? Uh, this seems like maybe a bit of weak sauce here. Well, I, I think again that that's it's really the the cops are schizophrenic in this way. We did have this extra cop announcement about powering past coal, and I think that that matters. And I think that the sort of political momentum and economic momentum around the the reduction in coal is going to continue. I think we will get rid of coal, but in the negotiations themselves, in the in the official negotiations what looked like it was going to be a call to phase out coal was watered down to a phase down of coal uh, because there are a number of countries that are heavily dependent on coal-fired power for their electricity generation that aren't ready to have that kind of commitment essentially written into an official agreement. And so you get this sort of schizophrenia of where we've got a number of of actors or, or friction where a number of actors are ready to move very quickly and you've got uh, you've got other actors that are are not ready to move in quite as uh, aggressive a manner, and that sort of compromise and friction is really reflected in what countries are able to come to consensus around in international agreements versus what 
groups of aggressive or sort of coalitions of the, the willing to move fast are able to do. So let's say that the uh, final text had said phase out. And let's say that, you know, all the countries, uh, especially the big ones, came and said, yes, we want to get off coal uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, and then you take a look at what uh, the struggles that China has had, yeah. you know, in, in, in getting uh, off its coal. I mean, the, the conflict between the central government and then the provincial governments that often have a lot of responsibility for implementing climate policies and coal policies that aren't on the same page. And, and this is a fairly strong central government, uh, you know, uh, nation. So could we maybe, even if had we got the language that uh, everyone wanted or the, the activists wanted, most people wanted, would it have made that much difference? Well, and that's a that's a great question, and and what this speaks to, and let me first have a caveat that I'm not a, an expert on on China. I do I pay attention to what goes on with Chinese climate policy, but I'm not a, a China politics specialist. But I think one of the two things. Well, first is the larger point I think here that you're making is an important one, and that is we have to remember that under the Paris Agreement, the real action around climate policy is national. Well, we have all of these announcements, we have all of these national contributions or national commitments, but they're pledges, right? And all of the what's in the Glasgow Pact, if you read all what's in the Glasgow Pact, that these are statements of principles. The real action happens at the national level, right? This is the logic of the Paris Agreement. And those that are happy about the Paris Agreement, this is the genius of the Paris Agreement. Those that don't like the Paris Agreement, this is the fatal flaw of the Paris Agreement. But climate policy is national, right? And so we are going to have this very question of whether the sort of overarching normative momentum towards getting rid of coal how that's going to play out in individual countries and, and how it plays out in China and India especially is going to determine in many ways sort of how or is going to be the rate determining step for how fast we're able to act on climate change. And we're seeing some of the fragility there with, with China having kind of a, a, a mini energy crisis going on right now. And this is going back to coal is, is one of the things that, that they're able to do. Now, hopefully, hopefully it's a temporary thing. And I think the momentum is there through um, China's long-term momentum is to move away from coal, but we're gonna have short-term issues like this until, because we're only partially way through a transition. And I think that that's important to remember as well. One thing I did pay quite a bit of attention to in the COP that I think is important is the number of countries that have started to talk not only about getting off coal themselves, but restricting coal exports. And once we start to see not only sort of domestic coal use in various places decrease, but countries that produce coal also start committing to not digging it up to, to export, then we're gonna start to see some, some real momentum on this. Well, let's talk about another area where there's been a lot of talk about reducing emissions, and that is methane. And there was, uh, I think it was over 100 countries that joined the Global Methane Pledge. And we've seen this play out in oil and gas producing countries with high methane emissions, the US and, and Canada. And we've only just got the technology to even measure it. And, and it appears that our, our measurements 
are probably one to, uh, are off by a factor of at least one or two. And so this, is a, this struck me as not only a big deal, but it comes at the right time because now we have technology to do the measurement, we have technology to fix the problem. And it, it seemed like a happy coincidence of all of these forces coming together. I think it is a big deal. I think that methane is one of those low hanging fruit where we can make a lot of progress and with existing technology, make a big difference quickly. And so I was really happy to see the methane agreement come out of, come out of COP. Now, again, it's gonna be about implementation, but this one, there doesn't seem to be, there's, there's not a big set of vested interests that would oppose something like this. And so countries should be able to move relative, I mean, it's not that it's costless, but it's not that there's a big, there's not a big interest opposing it. And so I'm hopeful that countries should be able to move quickly on this. And given how powerful a greenhouse gas methane is and how technologically feasible it is to, to at least start making a difference on that problem, this, is, this was a big bright spot for me. Yeah, and it helps that the uh, the leaked methane actually has value. I mean, that's yeah. natural gas, right? So yeah. if you leak it, you can't sell it. And so you have oil and gas companies that are uh, are happy to actually, well, maybe not happy because they should have done it a long time ago. But anyway, they're agreeable to fix, you know, fixing broken valves and closing plant hatches and all the places that, you know, pipelines where, where methane leaks. So this is, this is a really good, uh, good news story. We're, we're agreed on that. Well, let's move on to finance, Matt. And uh, maybe you can unpack this for me because uh, Mark Carney was there with the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. And I get the feeling there was a bit of a misunderstanding around what he exactly was bringing to the table because he seemed to say, hey, we have a hundred, we have uh, firms representing investments of assets under management of $130 trillion, capital's at the table, we've got the money to make this happen, folks. And I don't think that's quite what was going on. Am, am I correct in that? Yeah, it, it's, it's going to take a while to figure out exactly what that announcement was about. I mean, it's a splashy number. Let's be honest. $130 trillion with a T is a splashy number. Um, but from what I can tell, what they've pledged to do is a lot that these these companies with that amount of assets under management have pledged to align their investment strategies with the goal of net zero by 2050. Almost no one knows exactly what net zero strategies are for people that are trying to reduce their emissions. So Canada has a net zero by 2050 um, target. Those are amorphous to begin with. And so what an investment strategy that aligns with net zero by 2050 goals looks like is also amorphous and sort of second order um, worth of ambiguity there. And so it's not exactly clear. So on the positive side, it's great that the financial sector is starting to recognize at least the need to say they're aligned with this. So there's a retort that they, they have to be seen as being aligned with this. And what we'll see now is how they take that pledge, how they take that purpose and turn it into action. And that's where it's gonna be interesting to see what actually happens. If you know aligning one's investment strategy with 2050 or net zero by 2050 means pouring a bunch of money into climate positive initiatives into renewable energy, into just transition initiatives now, 
that's going to be very powerful because that's a lot of funds and we need capital to move in significant ways. Um, if it's, you know, we're going to delay action and if it's if the 2050 part is what gets emphasized and we don't really get moving very quickly, well, then it's not going to that's not going to have a, a, a huge amount of, of impact. And so really it is, I think it's an important announcement in terms of signaling where the financial sector is thinking about going, but the jury is out in terms of what it actually means to align a, an investment strategy with, with what is an amorphous target. Yeah, for our international listeners, uh, Canada has five big chartered banks and a number of them have been accused of uh, you know pledging a net zero by 2050, and then very quietly on the side continuing and even expanding their financing of fossil fuel extraction, yeah. including coal, and yeah. including coal in in other countries. So you know it it really amounts to uh, the banks would would disagree, of course, but it, it looks sure looks like greenwashing. Yeah, yeah, and that's the it, and the the danger with there's become, there's sort of two competing norms out there right now. And we have to, the danger is that the, the norm that's dominant is everybody announces a 2050 net zero pledge. And what we need to have as a norm is that everyone takes action to radically decarbonize as quickly as possible. Um, now those two things can go together. Right now, they're not. Right now, what we've got is a, a bunch of pledges and a bunch of this idea that people should be making pledges. And now we have to have the follow-up action. And that's so that's true of the state actors, Canada, United States, China, India. And it's also true of the financial sector. Well, let's talk about a, a state actor, and that's India, which came out with a commitment to net zero emissions by 2070. And I think the, the sense was, well, you know, it should have been 2050. But then on the other hand, they're being honest about how difficult it is for their economy. And I, I interviewed an Indian economist uh, last year, and he outlined some of the problems they have with getting to, you know, their decarbonization pathways. And it, there, it's a daunting challenge. Yeah, it is. And, and so I actually was... So pre-COP, I think people were relatively pleased with India in terms of coming out with a, what was a significantly strengthened NDC, and especially where India is coming from in terms of its per capita emissions and its historical non-responsibility for climate change and, and what it's dealing with in terms of sustainable development. Then, of course, they, they worked to water down a, a few things at the COP itself that was, was problematic, but, but you're right, that this was an honest pledge, right? This was an honest pledge. And I think that, that that's, that's important. I mean, one of the things about the Paris Agreement that is, uh, again, if, whether you love it or hate it, it is about countries pledging to do what they are see themselves as able to do, right? And now the question is, is there going to be follow-up on those pledges, right? Because in some ways, the net zero, the pledge is, is unimportant. If India starts taking action that is aimed at net zero by 2070, that's going to have all kinds of ancillary effects and, and catalytic effects that can drive towards decarbonization. We're not actually sure what kind of acceleration there can be once it gets started. And so the, the important thing is, a pledge has to be followed quickly by action because these actions have unknown and unintended consequences that can actually generate nonlinear change 
We see this all the time in social science, that once things get started, once the status quo gets challenged, you can get nonlinear change very quickly, and it might make those pledges um, obsolete in the good sense. Yeah, just uh, I'll throw in an observation here. I've interviewed I don't know how many experts now over the last uh, year, year and a half about the acceleration of the energy transition, particularly in key sectors like power, where you're getting renewables yeah. and storage and uh, transportation, where you're seeing, I mean, automakers are you know, flocking over to EV manufacturing, but you're also, that, that's just passenger, passenger cars. Now you're seeing you know, buses and, and uh, long haul freight and delivery vans and all sorts of things. It's just, it's, it's uh, breathtaking to see the change. And it seems to me that that kind of structural change in, in industry then can embolden the, the policymakers to, to do more because now they've got the cost-effective technology with which to do it. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that the Paris Agreement recognizes in some ways is that states are probably, countries are going to be kind of the last. If we're expecting national-level politicians to lead on this, that's we're in, we're in trouble. It is, what happens is you get change at subnational governments, you get change in corporations, you get change in civil society, and that alters the political calculus for taking more and more aggressive action, right? I mean, if you get the automotive industry to flip from an obstacle to climate action to a proponent of climate action, that's an enormous shift in political coalitions and political power that allows, opens up possibilities for all kinds of change around climate policy, right? And this is, this is actually also why the, the changing norms in the financial sector are so important, because it in somewhat weakens the political power of uh, the fossil fuel sector, right? And the fossil fuel sector has historically been the a biggest, one of the biggest obstacles to action on climate change. And so once you get the political power shifting because different corporate sectors shift, well, that changes the political calculus for aggressive climate action, I think in ways that, that we don't actually know how it's gonna play out yet. Interesting, well, look, let's talk about another difficult uh, sector to, uh, to mitigate climate change, and that's uh, forests and talk about deforestation. There was a big agreement uh, over 100 world leaders, including Brazil, uh, where the, most of the Amazon rainforest is, uh, is under threat, uh, pledged to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. I have to tell you, I, I, I really would like to, to believe that that is possible, but I, I also, you know, I'm a little skeptical. Yeah, no, so am I. And this is, I mean, uh, I, I don't know how many forest deforestation pledges there have been in the last 10 years, probably five or six. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm no longer surprised to see deforestation pledges come out of COPS. Um, whether it's going to happen, I, I, I'm, I'm doubtful. And, and this is, you got a couple of things going on here, right? You have, these are unenforceable pledges in important ways. Um, but also you have the, the worrying concern that uh, as global warming continues unabated, um, sometimes forests have become sources of greenhouse gas emissions rather than sinks, rather than uh, things that are taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere on balance. And so I, I think that this is critically important and I hope that states follow up on it, but um, this is not one I'm holding my breath on. Now we were talking about uh, electric vehicle uh, uh, makers 
And uh, that leads us into a conversation about transportation because 100, over 100 nation, city, states, major businesses committed to end the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035 in leading markets like Europe and by 2040 worldwide. And it seems like every six to 12 months, we're reevaluating where EV sales are going. In fact, uh, Bloomberg NEF did a, uh, an EV uh, fact book just for COP26. And one of the eye openers in there is they said, look, since 2019, every forecaster of EV sales has increased their forecast by tens of millions. And by the way, ours went up 100 million. Yeah. Now, now they're, they're forecasting 700 million uh, by, uh, by 2040. And, and so it's, this kind of reinforces, I think, the point we were making is that policy gets tougher, auto, the, the industry changes, policy can get a little tougher, and you get this, vir this virtuous cycle going. And that seems to be, I think, uh, what maybe is part, at least in part behind the, the transportation announcement. I think that's right. And I think that so you get some first movers on the policy side that sort of set a deadline for the, the phase out of, IC, of, of internal combustion engines. And that has sparked some of the growth in the EVs and in, in, in terms of what the long term planning for auto companies is. And you're right, you get this this nonlinear feedback cycle that we're going to see these things be phased out, I think, even faster than what the announcements are because you don't want to be the last you don't want to be in 2034 producing the last internal combustion engine when in 2035 they're they're out right and so this is the kind of thing where this is the kind of thing where longer term goals are going to generate action now as long as there's pretty a, a good amount of stability or certainty that corporations can look to and say look by 2035 we're out of the ICE business well, that's going to shift everything back to the kind of decision, capital decisions they're making now. And so, like, again, you don't want to be the last person selling an, an ICE, the, the 2034 model. Right. Look, uh, we have to finish up fairly quickly. So let's talk about Article 6. And this is fascinating to me because we had in Canada, uh, we had both Alberta Premier Jason Kenney and the Alberta-based oil and gas industry publicly promoting this idea of art under Article 6, that they would both sell uh, clean, and I'm doing the air quotes around clean, uh, LNG to uh, China to uh, displace coal in power generation, and also China, for some reason, would give them back their, their emission reduction credits. And uh, it, it appears that that is no longer on the table or a possibility under Article 6. Well, it's, so it depends. What, what Article 6 really, what they finally hammered out, and this is a key part of the Paris rulebook, is getting rid or, or setting up an accounting system for international transfer of emissions credits in a way that closed most of the double counting loops, right? Or, or mo most of the loop, loopholes around double counting. And so the worry was that someone would reduce their emissions in country A, sell those credits to country B, country B would use those credits to reach its own NDC commitments, and country A would say, look, we also reduce. So you, you wanna and use those to count against its commitments. And so they've set up now an accounting system to try and make sure that 
the reductions that are made can only be counted towards one country's NDC. So I can buy credits and count it towards my NDC, but then the seller can get money, but can't get credit towards their national commitment. And so they've tried to, and so in the example that you gave, sure, Alberta can sell ND, can sell natural gas to, to China to remove coal, to remove coal. China can use that to um, reduce its carbon dioxide, its greenhouse gas emissions, not its carbon dioxide, but its greenhouse gas emissions, but only one, either Canada or China, gets to use that towards its, count it towards its NDC, right? And so we'll have to figure out where the credit goes and, and who pays for what, but you can't count it twice anymore. And they, they were able to close most of those loopholes, which should make the, the international um, emissions credit market start to work some. We'll, we'll see how that goes though. Well, Matt, thank you very much for this. Uh, really appreciate your, your insights. I understand COP26 a little better than before we started. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. It was fun.